From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, MBW Digital proudly presents the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'd say thanks for tuning in, but why am I going to give you a round of applause for something you're supposed to do, to be frank? And now, here are your hosts, Chase Parm. And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to be on TV. Welcome into Henry's Guys, presented by Comer Heating and Air and Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. I'm Neil McCready. Today on the show, Adam Gorney, the college director of college recruiting for Rivals.com, joins. We'll talk about uh, his recent trip to New Orleans, his visit with um, the people around Arch Manning, the latest on Arch Manning's recruitment. We talked about Jaden Rashada, uh, who Adam has seen quite a bit over the last couple of years. We'll also uh, talk about recruiting. His thoughts on Ole Miss's approach to the transfer portal, his thoughts about how the transfer portal is impacting high school recruits, and we also talk about uh, how Rivals is adjusting to the transfer portal for those of you out there who have wanted, and you were right to want it, an updated, uh, I guess, recruiting system now that the transfer portal is such a big part of college football recruiting. You're about to get your wish. Rivals getting pretty close to unveiling something like that. It's been something that they're working on quite a bit uh, over the course of the last um, uh, few months. So we'll talk to Adam and then uh, Chase Parham and Brian Rippey visit. They talk Ole Miss Kentucky baseball, Ole Miss baseball in general, and some other topics as well over the course of the weekend. Ole Miss and Kentucky get started 530 Central, 630 Eastern. They're in Lexington this weekend. Uh, Ole Miss uh, football scrimmage is Saturday. As of this moment, to the best of my knowledge, it starts at noon. It's available, or I should say it's open, well, available, open to uh, to the media and also to the public. You guys can uh, go out to Hemingway Stadium and watch uh, Ole Miss's scrimmage. On uh, Saturday at noon, we'll have some post-scrimmage observations up at some point Saturday. There's no media opportunity, so there's nobody talking to us on uh, Saturday, so We'll have that to you as well, and uh, there's some recruiting information up at rebelgrove.com. We'll be checking in with those visitors and such after they leave, try to get you some recruiting information uh, over the course of the weekend as um, it's a beautiful weekend here in Oxford, so I hope you guys enjoy it. So we'll get to all of that in a minute. First, I want to tell you that we're brought to you by Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. It's the same great products, same great services, just different uh, names, same people, in fact. If you live in the Oxford Tupelo area, get in touch with uh, Comer at uh, 662-801-1777. If you live in Hernando, Memphis, DeSoto County, that area, get in touch with the people at Southern Air Conditioning and Heating, 662-429-4429. If um, it's kind of chilly outside, but you can tell that the warmer weather's coming, you want to make sure that air conditioning system is ready to roll. So get in touch uh, with Comer and Southern, and please make sure you tell them how much you appreciate them making shows like this possible. Uh, I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios, Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi, 662-257-1900. Call that number, ask for Corey Clark, tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for, and he will send you a quote within 15 minutes in business hours. It'll be right to the bottom line. There's no hassle, no haggle. You get your quote. The rest completely up to you. You can shop it around. You can um, do what I've done, and that's hop into a Clark Ford. You'll love the product. You'll love the service. Corey and the people at Clark Ford, they want to be your car guy. They want to be your truck guy. You'll find out what that means when uh, you make the call, 662-257-1900. 
Um, this will be the, uh, I guess this will be the Friday Oxford Exxon podcast. Don't forget, if you're coming into town next week for the Alabama series, if you're in town, around town, stop by the Oxford Exxon. You can fill up your tank. You can also fill up yourself. Go in. They've got, uh, it's always clean, uh, great snacks, plate lunches, all of those things and more at the Oxford Exxon Highway 6 West in Oxford. Adam Gorney, Brian Rippey join on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. If you're looking for a place to grab a burger, a po' boy, an appetizer, great beer selection, full bar, recommend Rafters Music and Food on the Square in Oxford. And also, if you're in the New Albany area, don't forget Rafters in New Albany as well. So as I mentioned, uh, a lot of Arch Manning content on the site over the course of the last week with uh, Adam Gorney's trip to New Orleans and the Rivals Camp Series stop in New Orleans. So he spent some time at Newman. He talked to the people there about the latest with the five-star quarterback, here's Adam Gorney on Arch Manning and much more. Adam Gorney, the National Recruiting Director for Rivals.com. I've known Adam for a long time when he was covering the West Coast. Now he's covering the whole country. Kind enough to spend some time with us today. My friend, how are you? Great, Neil. How are you doing, man? I'm good. Appreciate you uh, spending some time with us. Uh, obviously, you uh, piqued my attention even more than usual, uh, earlier this week when all the Arch Manning content kind of started coming out, you were in Louisiana last week. I know you weren't there strictly to do Arch stuff, but you did your share of Arch stuff. Um, I guess being around it, I know you talked to his high school coach. You were down there. You were actually at Newman for a little while. Just kind of your overall impressions of Arch mania and sort of uh, where things stand with, with the uh, five-star quarterback. Yeah, the good news is we're probably going to be able to get a Zoom call with Arch after his Alabama visit this weekend. So thank you for that. Uh, it's, it's, it's nearly impossible to talk to the kid. He's He has a very big circle around him. Um, and it's, you know, he's a great kid. And, you know, we've had people that have talked to him before and, and all of those things. But just the mania around him, they want to have some level, some semblance of control so it doesn't become a complete circus. Um, my impression from talking to his high school coach, from kind of getting a general sense of where things stand, is that Texas, Georgia, Alabama are probably that lead group. I don't know if it's that order. It's hard to know. I don't even know if anybody really knows right now. Um, Ole Miss is certainly in the, in the picture, in the, in the ballpark. I think meeting with Lane more, getting a sense of who he really is, Maybe a little bit more of a mature Lane Kiffin and the way he's run the offense there has been certainly positive. Um, I think that has all helped. There are certainly the connections that we don't need to go through, uh, the family connections. Um, I think that helps. I think what Matt Corral did there helps. They're going to throw the ball a lot and do what Arch does, which is throw the ball. And he's really a better athlete than he gets a lot of credit for. So all of the things that Lane Kiffin has done at Ole Miss, the, the points he's put up, the sort of advanced and evolved offense of not just throwing it every single down, but having a more balanced attack. What he did at Alabama, I think, helps Ole Miss's chances. I just get the sense from talking to Nelson Stewart, his coach, that the relationship that Arch has with Steve Sarkeesian and A.J. Milby at Texas is huge. Playing for Nick Saban and the just the development and real real business like approach is big to Arch and who Arch is and how he handles himself, but also to Cooper, to Peyton and Eli, who really don't have much of a 
final say in this, but certainly have offered their opinions. And then Georgia, he loves Athens. And so I think all of those things are playing factors here. Ole Miss is in the ballpark. They're, they have a fighting chance, um, but right now probably running out of metal contention. Do you get an impression? I, I thought it was interesting because I've heard people say, hey, this this thing could go late into the fall. And and yet, and Adam, if, I, if I'm misreading something, feel free to correct me. You will not be the first person. Um, I read you write the word soon. I yeah. thought. Uh, like you, I, and I'm, I'm was kind of reading tea leaves that you think maybe this ends sooner rather than later. Uh, can you clarify that a little bit? Yeah, there was a thought early on that he would commit early, and then he sees the coaching carousel, and 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 that had just gotten off the rails this year. I mean, we had all seen it across the country. Everybody's moving everywhere, and so I think the family kind of sat back and was like, you know what, we need to revisit all these schools. And meet with not not just to see the campuses and the facilities, but to meet with the coaches to get a real sense of what's going on here at each at each place. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to wait until the fall, and we're going to see game days at all these schools. And then the the just the nonstop of the entire recruiting process just continued and continued. And I think that now they're like, we kind of know who these guys are. We have a good sense of what we're going to get at each place. Um, things have settled down. Maybe after this Alabama visit, we can kind of sit down and get a lot more serious about making a decision. I don't know if that means sometime in the spring or early summer. I don't know if that means sometime in the right before his season. But right now, the sense that I got last week talking to everybody around him is that I don't see this going until signing day. I don't see this going until an all-star game. First, I don't think Arch wants to do that. And I think he has an idea of what he wants to do, at least sort of get toward that. So um, we'll see if it goes that late. It could, it certainly could because they're going to be patient. They're not going to be a, 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 a someone who commits and then, you know, an offensive coordinator leaves or a quarterback coach leaves and then decommit and redo all this stuff. So they've been very methodical about it. So I wouldn't be shocked if it goes through the fall, but I do get a sense that they kind of want to get this over with a little bit. You mentioned Texas and the relationship he has with Steve Sarkeesian and, and, and all of those guys. Do, do you get a sense that there would be a little more comfort with that decision? Because this time a year ago, Adam, I thought it was Texas. I, people yeah. would say, well, where's he going? And I would make everybody mad and I'd say he's going to Texas because I really think he's going to Texas. And I did, and, and a part of me still does. But they didn't have a great season in Austin. There's there's right. still a sense that, hey, Sarkeesian hasn't proven himself as a – as a head coach and 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 all of that, do you do you sense any reluctance in that regard? Like maybe it's Texas, but we kind of would like to see what the early part of the fall looks like. Yeah, that, that that's that is the interesting point there. We know what we're getting um, at Ole Miss. We know what we're getting at um, Alabama, certainly, and Georgia, certainly. Texas didn't have a great season, um, but I think I think they see that as an opportunity. His relationship with not Sark is definitely an important part, but AJ Milwee, that the position coach, I think is really what is selling him on Texas. And I think that they're not going to talk about this as much, but the NIL money that they can get at Texas is significant and, and possibly playing a factor. They, he comes from a family, luckily that doesn't need money. Uh, doesn't, that's not going to play a major factor in it, but it certainly doesn't hurt. Um, he loves Austin. He loves the coaching staff. He and Jonte Cook, who probably ends up at Texas, is you know kind of a close friend now. Um, there, there are certainly things that are looking toward that. 
It will be interesting, though, if he does wait and Texas struggles out of the gate and things aren't going all that well, uh, what happens? But I don't know if it gets to that late. I think Arch kind of sees himself as the guy if if they go, you know, seven and five, eight and four, six and six, whatever they go can kind of come in and clean that up. I don't think it's going to be that much of a factor for him. It will be interesting, though, because. At Alabama, uh, you know, Bryce will be gone probably after this year, almost certainly. But Ty Simpson isn't, you know, chopped liver. Georgia will have quarterbacks. Is this a situation where, you know, Arch is looking for a place that best fits him, but he's also looking for a place where I don't think he wants to sit for a year. Uh, And I think Texas gives them that opportunity. Ole Miss could give him that opportunity. So we'll see how this plays out. It'll be interesting, but... I do think that, uh, you know, if he waits to the fall and Texas struggles, then it, it, it'll get more interesting for sure. You cover this nationally, so you see a lot of the kids that end up at these programs. So I'm curious with this. Like, obviously, Texas, Steve Sarkeesian, Milway, it makes sense. Sarkeesian's an offensive mind. Lane Kiffin's an offensive mind. Alabama has produced now um, Tua and uh, Mac Jones and 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 yeah. Bryce Young, and uh, I'm probably leaving someone out. It, it, Alabama makes sense for quarterbacks. Uh, in in fact, I've had people tell me a national source who is connected to um, some of these people said, "Hey, look, if Nick Saban were ten years younger, this is over. That's where he would have yeah. gone." But you know, Nick Saban's not ten years younger. That's not how age works, and so that's opened the door for for other people. But yet, Georgia and they just won a national championship, and I get it. And you know where I'm probably going at this point. They have recruited incredibly well on the defensive side of the football. They have. Uh, recruited offensive linemen. They have recruited running backs. They have recruited wide receivers. They have recruited tight ends. They have done so many things to build a dynamic, uh, dynastic potential program in Athens. But Adam, they've not done worlds with quarterbacks and they've run off the wrong quarterback and they haven't put quarterbacks into the, into the pros and, and no one looks at the, the, offensive staff over there and goes, yeah, these guys are quarterback whisperers. Is it just he loves Athens or is it that he sees something in, in Georgia that, that maybe others don't? Yeah, it's definitely an interesting thing because if you look, I mean, you could certainly argue Kirby Smart has done very poorly with quarterbacks. Uh, Jacob Eason certainly didn't reach his potential. Justin Fields, you know, is running fake punts when he should be the starter. And, you know, you know, you go to Fromm and JT Daniels, you know, it was injured, but, you know, it was still a phenomenal talent. I don't care what anybody says. And then, you know, Stetson Bennett had the year he did, but is he an NFL quarterback? I don't know. We'll see. Um, I think it's two things. One, he likes Athens. Two, they won the national championship. When he goes there, he has a phenomenal time, but it's also Todd Munkin. I think that's going to play a factor. He has NFL experience. He's kind of a no-nonsense guy. Um, I think all those kinds of things. When you look at Georgia, though, um, you know, they're, they are still trying to find real playmakers at wide receiver. So that is going to be a factor. You know, this year they had sort of a three or four headed monster at running back. How much are you going to be handing the ball off? Um, I think that what they did with Stetson Bennett, um, you know, was impressive and is impressing him. Um, but that, that, that is certain. There are certainly things to weigh there. Arch is not going to pick a school just because he likes the town. I think that's that's certainly one factor that he has to consider um, and that he will certainly consider in his in his factoring. But there is so much more about how an offense is run, what kind of relationship he has with offensive coordinator and head coach, 
who they're recruiting around him, what the quarterback room looks like now, all those kinds of things. He's really, you know, from, from talking to people around him, he is a kid that really kind of wants to dive deep into film and be very mature about this. And so there's a million factors that he's going to consider, not one or two as he goes into this. You see other quarterbacks, um, another California quarterback whose name comes up with Ole Miss a lot is uh, Jaden Rashada from out there. I know you've been around him uh, some. Uh, what, do, what do you know about him as a player? Uh, how much of a, of a difference is there between Manning and Rashada? And then what do you hear about his recruiting? Yeah, uh, you know, we were lucky enough to have Malachi Nelson, Nico Yamaliava, and Jaden Rashada all at the Rivals camp in L.A., um, I would, I would do it one, two, three, just like that. Rashad is a very talented kid ball pops. He can make all the throws, very smart, savvy kid. Um, but he's just run into a recruiting class where there are two legit, no question, five-star quarterbacks in California. So he's the third guy. I mean, he's a very talented kid. I think whoever gets him is getting a major steal and a guy who's going to recruit for the class. And what I like about him is that he feels he's in that Nelson Iamaliava kind of discussion. And so he's real hungry. Like he wants to prove himself all the time. I, I really love that about him. I thought when I saw him, I saw him in a, in a seven on seven tournament last year, he was great. I was surprised at how much he had advanced in a year. And now another year on, he's, he's even better. Just a very smooth thrower, looks great. Um, you know, compare, you know, the, the arch thing is, is interesting because I don't think he's a million percent locked into the number one spot in the class. It's not like, you know, we see Trevor Lawrence and you're like, oh my God, this kid is, looks like he's already ready for the NFL. Um, you know, there are some balls that sail on him. Is that because the receipt, he doesn't have great receivers? Is that because he's putting it in the right spot and they can't get to it? You know, those kinds of things. His competition level in high school is not very good, but he doesn't have a, a ton of guys around him either. So there are certainly questions about Arch. It's not like he's no doubt 100% the number one quarterback or the number one player in the class. He's super phenomenal talent, but so are some other players. Rashada, um, I don't think is at that five-star level, but anything below that, he's certainly in the conversation for. Get a feel for how much Ole Miss is in that? Yeah, I think it's Ole Miss, Oregon right now. Um, he goes to Miami this weekend. He's going to have a good sense of that and kind of see the place and and get a feel for it. Um, Miami is in the ballpark for a quarterback in this class. I think Mario Cristobal is a very you know good recruiter, but I think he loves the offense under Lane. He wants to throw the ball. He is exactly what he's looking for. Kind of a, you know a guy that can spread the field and deliver it all over the place. A smart guy who's coachable. Um, so I think playing in the SEC is a big thing. Um, kind of having that cachet and that profile is definitely a big thing right now. I would say it's Ole Miss Oregon. Uh, but I would, wouldn't be surprised if Miami kind of joins that top group after the weekend. So the quarterback that I just got through talking to in, in Vaught Hemingway before I got back to get on this call with you is Jackson Dart. He's here. There's the, the recruiting is done. Um, you probably didn't see him ending up at Ole Miss any more than he did a couple of years ago when he was in Utah, but you've seen him play, you know, you're familiar with him yeah. as a high schooler and you saw him out there and at SC a year ago, what's Ole Miss getting in Jackson Dart? Yeah. He, I mean, what, what you're getting is, uh, and, and the first thing I'll say is like, he broke all these records in Utah passing and touchdowns and whatever else. And, and you wonder like, is that just Utah football and which is decent high school football, but he threw the ball so often. That's what you're getting. You're getting, 
I don't want to say gunslinger because I, I hate that term, but a guy who really wants to throw, a very competitive guy, someone who never really got the attention until very late in the recruiting process. And I think that's still sort of in his mind that he's like, he's the guy that needs to prove himself and go out there and be ultra competitive and, and then can deliver it all over the field. He essentially kind of took Keaton Slovis's starting job. I mean, he, he was a guy that had definitely earned that and, and, and went into a situation with an established quarterback, didn't care, went to it, went to a place at USC with another quarterback who was a local kid Miller Moss in the same recruiting class didn't care just like that. That's what you're getting from him. A guy who's going to go into the room, be competitive when the game's on the line, he wants the ball, thinks he can make all the plays can probably make all the plays. And, you know, you surround himself with some talented guys with lanes play calling, and you're going to get a guy that's very, very productive, uh, you know, and, and is really kind of fearless with the ball in his hands. All right. I know that you've talked about this with a lot of people. I'm curious because it's such a topic here. Uh, and Ole Miss has had a tremendous amount of success in the transfer portal. Maybe, maybe as much as any other program, uh, there might, maybe there's one or two that have had more, but they're way up there in terms of yeah. their ability to add impactful players out of the portal. And Lane Kiffin more and more, it seems like, is, is diving deeper and deeper into the portal your thoughts just from afar on what Ole Miss has done in terms of roster construction, how um, when you look at it, do you think, boy, that's risky, or do you think this is the way to go and he's, he's turned the corner? I mean, what Just kind of your thoughts on the way Ole Miss has, has changed its roster via the transfer portal. Yeah, I want to say this first. That at Rivals, we've seen this coming down. And so, you know, our tech people are basically integrating a transfer portal rankings plus high school rankings to make a, a whole, like a holistic approach to the rankings process. Cause the last thing we want to do, and we, we, we know it's happening. Guys are taking 10 guys in high school and then 15 portal guys, 18 portal guys. Yep. And then we're reflecting that class as the 10 high school guys. And that is really not the approach that we want to have because they're intentionally doing this. This isn't, you know, some filler at the back end of a recruiting class. This is, this, this is guys, and we know this for sure, there are guys on every staff that sit there and refresh the transfer portal database almost constantly to see who's entering, how to do it. And, and it brings on so many other interesting storylines. How do you construct a roster um, if you know that this following year, you know, this previous year, Spencer Rattler and Caleb Williams will be in the transfer portal. Like, you know, this following year that, that some of the most high profile quarterbacks or receivers or running backs or whoever will be in the transfer portal. Do you take a shot on some high school kid that you feel kind of lukewarm about, but you have to add or do you wait? So, you know, it's really just sort of changed recruiting in, in, in just such a monumental way because the high school kid, um, is, is still first. I think most schools are still going to try to load up with high school kids, but you're, you're reserving what eight, 10, 12 places now for, you know, for transfer portal kids, if not more. Yeah. The numbers that you just said is what I would have said, but like Ole Miss did this, this past season where they said, Hey, we're not going to reach on, on guys. If we, yeah. if we, if we can get a high school guy that we love, we're going to take him. If we can't, we're going to see what happens in the portal. And then I think what happened to Ole Miss, and it wasn't just Ole Miss, in the SEC alone, South Carolina did this. Uh, Arkansas did a lot of this. Kentucky did a lot of this. And I'm probably leaving somebody out, Adam, that had a lot of portal success. And what they've done is now I I keep 
I hear these whispers of, look, we'll take 15, 16 high school kids if we can get them. Great. Yeah. But if, you know, like, for example, you, you land Arch Manning and he has coattails. Yeah. But if you don't, you don't reach. And if that means you just take eight high school kids and dive back into the portal because you get these situations with Jackson Dart and, and um, I'm, I'm leaving people out who I know, yeah. My, Michael Trigg, you get these guys that they are potentially at Ole Miss for three years, two years, yeah. three years. Those are, well, that's not just a one-year, you know, Chance Campbell come in, play linebacker for a fall, leave, go pro. Yeah. This is yeah. guys that are going to be a part of your program. And if you think you can consist consistently get those guys, well, you get proven guys that you have film on at the college level. You've seen Jackson Dart and Michael Trigg play at USC. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's a different deal than evaluating a kid that plays at, say, Isidore Newman. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're getting you basically skip that year of onboarding, that year of homesick, the year of not understanding the schedule and all those kinds of things. And I also think what you're getting is a guy who's like, man, I got to make it work now. You know, I'm not going to go back in the portal. There'll, there'll be those guys, but they're kind of guys probably you wouldn't want a lot of times anyway. So you're like, all right, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it well. You know, I this is my opportunity here. I have two years. I have possibly three years to get this right. And so it is a lot more juggling in terms of how you're recruiting and constructing your class, but there are a lot bigger paydays that you can have. You, you know, instead of bringing on an 18 year old freshman who doesn't know, you know, anything or how, how this system works or anything, you're bringing on a 20 year old man who now understands that this is his opportunity to win a starting job and get on the field. So, you know, I, I'm sure that, you know, there are definitely things that, you know, Lane is looked at, or like you said, Shane Beamer at South Carolina or Sam Pittman said, you know, man, we're really young at linebacker, man, we're young at safety, or we need a backup quarterback or whatever it would be. And they're going to go, you know, we can't bring in a, a, an 18 year old kid that doesn't know what he's going, what he's doing. We're going to go to the portal and get those guys. And a lot of guys have used this um, to their benefit. It's definitely interesting. Um, you know, basketball, Football has turned into basketball in a lot of ways. Seven on seven is like AAU. Uh, the transfer portal is a, not not in the same way, but a lot like Kentucky does the one on one and done. People know they're coming in to prove themselves and go to the NBA, much like the transfer portal has turned into guys getting a second opportunity, prove themselves to try to get to the NFL. What does it mean nationally to the, for lack of a better term, the 5.73 star, the good player who like you mentioned in, in not so long ago would be the, you know, the 22nd, 23rd, 24th guy in the yeah. class and the South Carolina class and the Mississippi state class. Well, now those guys aren't landing in those programs. They're, they're having to go to a different place. I've seen some high school kids beginning to understand that, Hey, the portal's hurting me uh, yeah. a lot. You're, you're seeing this nationally much more than I am here on this local level. What are you seeing in terms of what the portal's doing to the, the, the way that recruiting shakes out? It's still in the early stages of kind of getting a feel for how that is. But like, as we've both seen, there are more people in the portal than spots left on rosters. So just that alone is taking away spots. And we haven't seen yet if that means kids, high school kids are trying to lock in earlier or if they're waiting later to see where they can kind of fall out. But like you said, the five, seven, three star, the, the mid-level three star that, you know, schools have taken a shot. And we know all those guys that have been like low three star, mid three star guys at the end, 
Um, you know, they have nothing much going on or, you know, they could go to Tulane or Louisiana Monroe. Then they end up at Mississippi State or they end up at Ole Miss or Arkansas or, you know, Auburn will take a shot on a kid here or there or wherever it would be. Now, sure. now, now there's there's very little of that. Why why take a shot? Let's let's take a portal kid. We know more about him. We've seen him more. We've we recruited him two years ago. So um, it certainly hurts those kids and those opportunities. I don't know how you get around it in terms of numbers. I don't know if you put the number higher on what you can get on a roster or limit the number of portal guys you get. I don't know how you get around that, but it certainly hurts those kids um, who've had opportunities before that probably won't now. What I'm so interested to see, Adam, over the course of time, and you're right, it's still so early, and we haven't had enough cycles in this to know here's how exactly this is going to shake out. But I'm curious, like some of the programs you just named, like, ULM or South Alabama or Southern Miss or North Texas or whatever, Louisiana Tech, I mean, fill in the blanks, whatever. Yeah. Do those programs go, you know, we're going to dive into the portal too because we, we want to get those older kids? Or do they say, hey, we're going to be able to get more of the three high three-star, mid-three-star players that in the past we couldn't get because the big schools would come in at the end and poach them to fill out their classes? And we're going to accept the fact that for at least for a couple of years, we might be a feeder program to the bigger schools when NIL kicks in and they yeah. get other opportunities. And I don't know which way that's going to go. I think it's, I think it's also like school dependent. Like if I'm Louisiana tech's coach and you know, I went three and nine and four and eight, and now it's like, man, I, I got to start winning here. I can't bring in 25, 18 year olds and build this program in three years. I have to go to the portal and do that. And I think you yeah. see that too, in college football. And I'm, you know, that's certainly not the case right now at Ole Miss, but there are places where you're like, man, I, I, I can't wait for this kid to develop. Then they're, no, they're not going to wait for me. I need to go to the portal. I think that is part of it too. Coaches go, I need to get veteran guys on this team. And the way to do that is through the portal. And I can sort of sacrifice maybe taking a high school kid that I really like, and I think can be good in two years, but I might not have two years. So I think that's part of the calculation too. But like you said, the smaller schools, I think, I think they have to feel that out for themselves. And, um, you know, I could wait, uh, you know, the, I, at the New Orleans camp this past weekend, I saw guys who were probably low four stars that had Tulane and Louisiana tech offers. And I know that's because one, well, Brian Kelly has been a little patient on offering in state kids, but I also know that's because guys, you know, LSU doesn't want some kid jumping on that LSU offer when they can get a portal guy coming up. And so it's really, I think, I think the coaches are still trying to figure it out. We're trying to figure it out. And the kids certainly are trying to figure out what's going on. And, you know, I'm, I'm killing everybody and I have, a, I, I'm kicking ass at every camp that I go to. Why is no one offering me? It's because they're all still trying to juggle that, you know, who's going to be in the portal in three months, because I like you, but I like this 20 year old who's played two years already more. Last thing. I and mean, I really appreciate your time today. Um, great stuff. <laughs> NIL, we saw all the talk and Lane Kiffin got involved with it with Jimbo Fisher and Jimbo called him a clown and Lane kind of doubled down with no, I'm just saying what I, whatever. <laughs> Obviously, Texas A&M had a big time recruiting class. Uh, Lincoln Riley in part left Oklahoma for USC because of NIL opportunities and the type of player that he could recruit. Um, you know, you got Texas about to join the SEC and Texas kind of talking about, hey, we can match A&M buck for buck on on NIL. You're around these top kids every single year. You and you 
they they want to get that piece of paper from you that invites them to the the ultimate event and all of that stuff. Are you shift seeing a shift or sensing a shift is probably the better way to phrase this, Adam, in who is going to become the powers in college football recruiting based on what's happening with NIL? It's again, it's a little early, but I will say kids still feel like it's taboo to talk about a little bit like, oh, I you know got this or got that. But exactly what the NCAA was trying to avoid inducements for recruiting is exactly what's happening. I mean, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that kids are being offered money through these collectives. And now the offshoot of a collective is this thing called a directive, which is just a one, one-to-one, <laughs> uh, you know, they don't even collect their money. Like, you know, some big Texas booster can just come in with a million dollars and say, go to Texas. And there's really nothing they can do unless there's, I, I would imagine federal legislation um, through the NCA to get that done. But it's, it's exactly what, you know, 10 years ago, if someone came in and said, you know, you can have $50,000 to go to Alabama, there was an investigation. Now it's NIL and it's perfectly fine and legal and all of those kinds of things. So, you know, Lane has said some stuff I certainly haven't agreed with, but if Jimbo Fisher thinks he got all of those players there because of his incredible coaching job this past year, when they were supposed to make another run to the playoff and didn't, uh, you know, he's fooling himself. So of course, NIL is going to play a huge factor in recruiting. Um, you know, a quarterback, uh, just committed on an $8 million NIL deal. Now, if he gets that $8 million, how that works, I don't know. We'll see how this all plays out. I will say, though, that I think the top-end kids, the highest-end kids, will, will certainly make decisions based off of NIL. But if they don't pick the right school, that NIL money will look like peanuts to what an NFL contract will essentially end up looking like. And so... The these collectives that are being put together will help recruiting, but in many ways, I think a lot of those kids would have been ended up at those schools anyway. You know, Texas has unlimited funds, Texas AM has big money, Florida has a big collective. I'm sure Georgia and Alabama are putting money together. Ohio State has all kinds of things where now Urban Meyer is involved in their NIL deals, and so you know, those schools anyway. But I do think that, like. You know, those the, those mid-level schools that are fighting and clawing for conference, you know, you know, importance, Baylor. It'll be interesting to see how Baylor kind of reacts to this. Um, Oklahoma State, can they put the money together now um, to, to get kids there that that might now go somewhere else because of money that's involved? You're not only now recruiting and you're not only now figuring out transfer portal, you're and and to be honest with you, how much coaches have involvement with the collectives that are putting these things together? Let's imagine let's just imagine not all of them are completely behind a a, a firewall here. So more than all fair. of that stuff together too. And and then on our side going, all right, yeah, this kid likes, you know, Washington and this kid likes Texas A&M, but USC just came in with a $3 million NIL deal. It doesn't matter how much he likes Texas A&M, he's going to USC. So 
it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. It certainly adds an interesting new layer to what we do for a living. Um, certainly a complicated layer. And I fear the problem with basketball recruiting is that a lot of the kids don't even know where they're going because they're just pointed directed by some sort of business manager to a school. And that kind of waters down college basketball. We've seen it. I mean, come on, it's not the same product as it was, uh, you know, years ago. I fear that's what's going to happen in college football. And I also fear, and I was talking to someone this, this past weekend about this, someone signs an NIL deal at a school, a quarterback that probably shouldn't be at that school, but he goes there. Then He throws three interceptions. Do the fans just immediately turn on him because they donated $50 to a collective? I mean, that kind of stuff is going to be happening now. You know, I don't want the good old days to come back because maybe it wasn't all just good old days, but um, it's certainly interesting how this plays out. There needs to be some sort of legislation wrapped around it. How that works, I don't know. Um, I don't want the kids to be put out but I also don't want kids making decisions to go to schools. They have no business going there for, for $300,000 because that money goes away pretty quickly. Yeah. It's a fascinating topic. It really is. Yeah, it is. We could go on for a long time. I'm sure you talk about it a lot and you see these kids and that kind of thing. So uh, I will not keep any more of your time, Adam. I really appreciate it. It was great. Uh, great talking to you and catching up with you. Hope to see you down the road uh, sometime in person soon. Of course, Neil, anytime. That's Adam Gorney with uh, Rivals.com. So thanks to Adam for uh, his time late yesterday, uh, giving some time for the podcast, for the show. Really appreciate that. Again, uh, Ole Miss and Kentucky this weekend in Lexington. Three-game set starting this evening at 6.30 Eastern, 5.30 Central. Chase Parham and Brian Rippey talked about the Rebels and the Wildcats, Ole Miss baseball, and more um, late yesterday. So here's that conversation between Chase Parham and Brian Rippey. Brian Rippey now joining us, I guess, on the Raptors Museum Food Hotline. We can uh, call it that, talking a little baseball, mostly here on this edition of the uh, of the show. Brian, you got a pretty busy week. You and Colin did your, uh, your wrap-up, I guess, Sunday into Monday. Talk about Kentucky with him, I guess, later tonight, because you're talking a lot of baseball here as we're taping on Wednesday night, and then you are uh, – you're talking to Greg LB. He's going to do some food stuff here uh, soon as well. Still time to get questions in. If somebody has those, I think there'll be time for that. So you can head on over, tweet at Brian, however you want to do that to uh, to get some questions for uh, for the uh, the grilling shows. You know, it's probably a pretty good change of pace. You've got all this stuff going on. We talk so much baseball. We're sort of in the minutia, or as much as you can be living uh, in, in the metroplex of uh of baseball to get away from it and talk some meat and some steak and some grilling it's probably a decent change of pace this week oh it's great and like there's not a i'm completely clueless about it we started this last spring because we had people asking questions when i would have greg on to just do mailbag stuff and it would be grilling stuff and it very clearly i was like i can't answer this i know how to turn a grill on i can do one or two things that's really about it and talk about a guy that like loves to smoke some meat let him get some horse racing stuff in between. He's like the redneck Bob Baffert. He's uh, headed to a horse sale this weekend. We had to work in the recording around his scheduling. So it's certainly a nice change of pace, but uh, people like it. It's a great, uh, you know, great spring summertime hobby. I kind of wish I knew more about it, but for a guy that doesn't really eat in restaurants at all and makes all of his own food, it is right up Greg's alley. So what is your ratio, your ratio out there or how has it changed from Oxford? Like, 
pick up, dine in, cook, grill? Like what, what, what's, what's the normal week? It's gotten worse because so I live in under a, you call it a shopping center basically, but it's got five, six restaurants, a couple coffee shops, whatever. And so while I'm not very great at cooking, I used to go get the basic items, get to do a grocery run and all that. Well, I mean, Walmart and all that's only about two miles away. But when you have like, I don't know, there's a place called Village Burger as the crow flies probably about 60 feet underneath me. So when you have that there, it gets worse. So I've gotten in the habit of probably too much buying and eating out, but I'd like to get back to more cooking. Uh, no place to grill, really. But um, I've done that at MC's apartment a couple of times. But uh, grilling has gone down since I left Oxford. So you you said you saw it. I kind of want to start here. There's a lot of different things I want to get to over the course of the next little bit. Um, the quote Mike gave, Noah and I talked a little bit about it on Wednesday morning. And I, I sort of let it marinate a little bit. Um, when I asked it, I was just expecting, this is after the UNA, uh, the win over UNA on, on, on Tuesday night. I, my question to Mike was simply, hey, is there anything with the rotation that you're ready to announce or is there any changes or whatever? And it was it was one of those gaps in the questions where I knew we weren't done with him yet. So I was almost killing time as much as anything else. I didn't really expect an answer. And he goes on this tangent, but it's not a – most of his tangents are frustrated by something. It really wasn't that. It felt like he was actually trying to give a legitimate answer, an honest answer. He seemed perplexed, not really sure what to do. And for a coach that has been pretty rigid with his rotation over the years, he's never really focused on openers at all, um, never been one to do anything other than, hey, get, get the best arm as long as you can go. There's not a lot of creativity. Am I crazy here? to be buying it that he at least is open and trying anything? And is it is it out of desperation because you know that there's absolutely no other choice right here? But I'll be honest, and I don't know if this is actually a compliment or a, or, or a negative toward him. He's If it's true, he's gotten to this place faster than I ever thought he would have this season. No, I think you're certainly on to something. And I think in terms of baseball decision-making, it's actually been – like the seed of this and kind of the transformations probably been planted the last couple of years. Um, but you're right. Like I'm, I was more surprised by the answer and the depth that he went into in elaborating. And uh, honestly, I saw that there's some beard commentary going on after. So honestly, the mood he was in because without going like too far inside baseball, there's like a way you have to set questions up like that sometimes. And like him mm-hmm. asking about the weekend rotation or whomever, um, like is going to pitch the next day that never really leads to like him, like snipping at you, but he can be short and kind of uh, uh, curt if he doesn't want you to ask about it. And he doesn't know yet. Like, I don't think a lot of the time he's ever been like, I don't know when he actually knows for sure. That tends to be when he gets more frustrated, but be that as it may, that's not necessarily something that triggers a curt response, but I was more surprised by the in-depth. It seemed like he wanted to get a message out in almost some ways. And he very rarely uses, you know, six of us standing out in the outfield to get some sort of message about, about his thinking. And as far as the baseball decision-making part of it and what you were talking about, am I crazy to buy it? No, I thought that was a great answer. And look, I'm not hesitant to criticize the guy by any stretch of the imagination, yeah, but I yeah. think it's, it's a smart answer. And I think it's indicative of honestly, his thinking in the last couple of years, like Colin and I talked about this a little bit on Sunday, like Mike started Taylor Broadway in game three of that super regional last year. And it didn't work. And it turned out to be a moot point, but what are the chances Mike Bianco would go with his 
closer, which was the best option, the best pitcher in game three of a super that had been his closer all year, say even four years ago. And so I think he's become more open-minded to things like that to his credit. And you know, you talk about the opener aspect of it. I think he's opened his mind in other ways like that too. I remember when like the opener was getting big with the Rays and Kevin Cash, I think we had like a press box discussion one time. I was like, what are the odds he knows what an opener is? That's when it was first starting up. I think the Rays were doing it in a series against yeah, the yeah. Angels or something. And I got, <laughs> I think I put the odds at about 35, 40%. And then now he's talking about, you know, we don't necessarily go with an opener. I do to actually get into the quote, I like the mindset of do whatever it needs to do, whatever you need to do to get 27 outs over the course of a game and, you know, over the course of a weekend, because I think that's where you have to go after a weekend like this. You have to look at it that way. Whatever we have to do is not working because you can't go, he'll be our starter, he'll be this starter, he'll be whatever, because no one's a starter right now. They've had a guy reach the fifth inning one time. Like the, it's back to the drawing board, how can you get 27 outs? I was impressed by the answer, to be honest. It felt like some real soul searching, like not to get too deep with him or anything, or like he was like pouring his heart out to us. But at the same time, I think it's something he's had to kind of get to himself. I mean, I think he has meetings with the pitching staff. He has meetings with, I guess, Carl and Mike and whoever else was in in, in the meeting before that. He mentioned just meeting with the staff. And I think that it's one of those deals that is absolutely – his way of going, okay, this is the only way we're going to get through this. This is our only option that we have. And we'll get to why that is in a second. But he also put a lot of pressure on himself in a quote that I think that's probably the part of this that he's dealing the most with because, like I said, he's so used to just plug and play. Here's my Friday guy. Here's my Saturday guy. We're going to bridge with this guy. Then here's my closer who comes into the seventh or the eighth inning. I mean, I've covered 17 seasons of this dude, and that's pretty much all the way through where, where I can get to every year. I think that he, he – the, the most interesting part of the quote to me was when he said, we have to game plan it better. We have to do whatever it was that he – it's not in front of me right now. But essentially, it was up to the coaching staff to find the right time for the right roles and then also know when to get them the hell out of there. And know, okay, that's it. You're going to give me three. We're going to hand the ball to somebody else. We're going to try to get one or two or whatnot. It's on a year that is so fascinating because they were number one in the country. They clearly were not the best team in the country, but they were ranked number one in the country. They have all these pitching issues. They've had injuries. The offense has been inconsistent. It's adding another layer where I just stare at this team and not even like a car wreck because they don't suck. They're not bad. But I've never been more fascinated to kind of watch a series and go, okay, well, all this other stuff is going on, and now I get to see how you're going to handle pitching for three days when you don't even think you have a starting pitcher? Yeah, it's crazy. It's a weird place to be. And to his credit, he's always kind of figured out how to be competent pitching-wise. Um, as far as like a competitive rotation, now look, it, always, it hasn't always been great. And there's been some teams to where it's, you know, two starters and a bullpen arm and almost a half of a bullpen arm, depending on who the guy is and can you depend on him. But he's found a way to where pitching is not just a complete and utter non-starter from a being competitive standpoint, like it was honestly this past weekend. Like Ole Miss didn't really stand a chance in any of those, either of those first two games because of their starting pitching. And you're right, it's an interesting place to be. And I think that was a fascinating part of the quote and one of the other parts that he had in there and I don't have it in front of me but the part where he talked about we've pitched it pretty well out of the bullpen and particularly if you take out that one game against Auburn and look you know ifs ands or buts you can't take out that one game it's one of the six games in a small sample size they have pitched it well out of the bullpen and so 
you know, you talk about, I don't know what to do when I look at this team. They don't suck, but at the same time, there's not a single guy you feel confident in, you know, going and giving you five, six innings on either, any of the days throughout an SEC weekend. Like that's that's not a great like way to like when you look at it from that sense, you're like, okay, they really might be screwed here, but there are options in some senses to where there have been glimmers of success out of the bullpen that would lead you to believe they can just get it okay on the mound. The bullpen has been deep enough to where they could figure it out and be okay. Because I don't know about you. I think they will still hit okay in the long run. Look, there's some concerning numbers last weekend was not great. They got dominated by velocity. They don't normally do, but I think they, I think they will eventually hit at a level that'll be top four ish top three in the sec. So if they can figure this starting pitching out, they could be okay. I just think that's what got exposed last weekend and the offense no-showing just made the scores worse and the optics worse. Are there any, or if so, which pitchers do you think can actually get through a lineup a second time? I want to say Brandon Johnson, but we've never really seen it. No, we haven't seen it at all. I'll be honest. I would hand him the ball on Friday night just to see what the hell happens. No, no, I would too. And I have a I have a sneaking suspicion that might be the way they're going. And no, it has nothing to do with the pitching chart on the I, the guy charting pitches on the midweek. I don't know what that means. I just was texting it to you. I was like, well, well because if, if he's truly TBA, 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 somebody's got to chart the pitches. So like whatever, like fine. Yeah, like, yeah. And yeah. you know, Johnson was probably not available, even if that like uh, no matter who the opponent, he probably wasn't available because of the amount of pitches he threw on Sunday. But like He's never had any sort of outing like this in his career. Like he gets the final nine outs against UCF. I don't think he had, I could be wrong about this. I'm not sure he had a nine outer in 2021. He only had about a quarter of a season or half a season, 2021. No, he never got nine outs. So like, I don't know, but that's, that's what I would go with is possibly the best option. And honest to God, I think the second one would be Riley Maddox as crazy as that sounds. And that's probably the perfect way to encapsulate just how lost they seem with this pitching staff that your my first two answers are dudes that have quite literally never done it. I don't know what to do with the freshmen. You you, you get the you get the three freshmen, you get Mason Nichols, Hunter Elliott, and, and, and Riley Maddox. There have been parts that I like about all their games. There's very little they've done wrong for the most part. If you told me that next season Ole Miss's three starting pitchers are those three guys, I I couldn't tell you you're crazy by any stretch of the imagination. I definitely think two of them are, for the most part. It's a tall order right now um, for a number of ways. It's why I kind of like Brooke Johnson. I think Doherty could close if he had to. I told Neil that this morning. I think that he's a guy who, who could transition to the back of the bullpen or whatever. Um, I, I, if you told me to guess – and it's strictly a guess, and maybe Mike announces this before we even run the podcast, and it's completely irrelevant. But it feels like Johnson, a freshman, and Diamond, I think. I, I, I thought Derek was okay. Like, he wasn't great. I mean, Mike called him terrific, and like I said earlier in the week, that is a sign of where Mike is grading on a curve with his staff right now and what he thinks about his staff. Because, you and know – Diamond individually. In, in 2009, there's no way he would have said, oh, yeah, Drew was terrific after he had gone, you know, 4.2 innings or whatever it was. Um, so th- I thought that was an eye-opening statement. I thought that was something. But the Diamond can get you through an order once. So if we're really doing an opening thing, if you're really just trying to figure out outs, I trust Derek more than most to get through it one time. Now, I, I, I would worry about him immediately the second time, but I, I, for the most part, I trust him to get through it one time. 
And I, and I think that's very doable, you know, and it, it leads into the other part, which is Mike having to do this, Ole Miss not having starting pitching like they normally do. It's a development problem. It's a recruiting problem. It's a misevaluation problem with some different guys. I mean, we talked about this last week, and I'm probably going to write about it and kind of put it in word form later in the week, is that they're getting nothing out of this junior class for the most part with Diamond and McDaniel, a lot of money tied up in those guys from a scholarship standpoint. Otherwise, you're talking about Morrell and Kimbrell and Burton, where you're not getting much out of those guys at all. Out of the sophomore class, it's Mallets and it's Doherty. It, it is – when you put it on paper and look at it, and I just kind of wrote them down in a notepad earlier today and was like, okay, this guy, this guy, this guy, here's kind of what this looks like. It is startling how little either they have developed or bad luck or injuries or whatever you want to do to any of those guys – it looks nothing like a normal Ole Miss baseball roster in any way from a pitching staff standpoint. And do we have a reason why? I mean, is it is it simply a McDaniel? And I guess because here's my point. If McDaniel and Diamond had both panned out to the level of being Lynn and Pomerantz, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now because we go, oh, wow, they've got a one-two punch. Do what? Just three-fourths of that. If they're, if they're right. three-fourths as good as each one of them, you're not having this conversation. Yeah, if it's Rollison and Feigl or whatever. If, it, if it's two dudes who are doing what they're supposed to do, we're going, oh, okay, yeah, you got to find the Sunday starter. But, hey, Doherty's been all right, and we, we're having that conversation instead. He's never missed like this on top-end arms. He's never gotten that wrong to the point that he has. And, now, look, I don't know that Derek Diamond's healthy. I frankly think he's got some elbow stuff that he's had for a while. Nobody's going to admit that, and that's fine, my own personal opinion. But I've not seen a miss like this to this level. And, it, I, you know, maybe it's just, hey, he's finally do one because he had figured it out for 22 years. But part of me just keeps coming back is why is there so much, for lack of a better term, and I'm not trying to pick on kids, why is there so much dead weight with high school recruits in this class and on, on, this, on this pitching staff roster? We talked about this a little bit on Sunday, and it's because of what, like, I, I called you on the way out to Fort Worth or, or – Fort Worth or whatever, when we were talking about it, you brought up the point that I had never really thought about it like that. And then I was sitting down trying to go through the last couple of classes and I was like, man, this, this isn't a pretty picture by any stretch. And you you can go through it, right? I don't think diamond is healthy either. It's just an opinion. I don't know anything, but I've, I've never seen a guy go from 93 when he's amped up to 88, you know, four people out. don't choose to be able to throw 97 and go, no, I'm going to throw 89 instead. Exactly. And so I, I I just don't think he's fully healthy. And so you can go through probably guy after guy and say, well, this happened and this happened. But, you know, Colin retorted, um, I thought, in kind of a smart way that that kind of eliminates a lot of the nitpicking. And who is the last guy that went through that what top end guy, middle end guy and was much significantly better by the time he left? Like, does Hoagland count? Like, it's Nikhazy. And then whom else? Because you could after Nikhazy, you know, with a couple exceptions that you could maybe make an argument for, you can kind of go back a while without it. Because like even Rollison, his last year wasn't great. Remember, like the fastball command stunk, and he didn't have. No, he he never there. panned out all the way of what you expected. So um, what's your answer? Like what? Like when Hoagland counts? They, they they told Hoagland how to pitch. Um, Gunner as a freshman just threw the ball across the middle of the plate because. You know, I, it was what everybody always got hung up on out of high school. We had that stat where he had, he didn't walk a batter his senior year of high school. He only had three – or, sorry, six three-ball counts his senior year of high school. It's an asinine stat, but it's also 
a terrible stat because right. it means you weren't pitching. You were just throwing the ball across the middle of the plate. Nobody could hit you because you had better stuff than the people that you were playing. And he would get in trouble as a freshman and just here. Poof. They changed his breaking ball. They made it better. I thought they did a good job with Gunner. I thought that, you know, if that 20 season doesn't get canceled, you're talking about a potential national pitcher of the year kind of guy in Gunner Hoagland. His arm was healthy. He was he was better than Doug through that portion of the schedule in 2020. Now, you know, now he had to hold it together mentally. He had some other stuff going on. Um, I thought they did a good job with Brady Feigl, speaking of. Um, I thought they got a lot out of that. Out of that. Um, but for the most part, you're right. I mean, you, you look at, you know, expectations, college results versus prospect level. And a lot of times guys get drafted beyond their stats, if you will. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, Drew's yeah. the exception, obviously, because he was he basically won the Golden Spikes. It wasn't for being in Bryce Harper's class. But for the most part, it's they've always had really good pitching. They always have top end, front end pitching inside the league. But from a hey, this guy came in and he's this huge stud and whatever, what'd you do? Yeah, the the numbers don't always don't always account for that for whatever reason. And I mean, I you know that's everybody has an opinion. It's, it's a pretty big message board topic right now. Of hey, they need to hire a, a you know a more significant pitching coach and they do all these things. And that's a whole other conversation. But there is some level of development that feels like it is slipping at some point. Yes. Yeah, I think that's unquestionable. I'll, I always wonder, I see a couple of the message board topics, and I wonder how much spicier they would get if, you know, the general public was at one of those practices where he's sitting on the back of the mound like this in the bullpen, mm-hmm. just getting after folks. Um, what is your that, opinion? I mean, speaking of that, I mean, it's, it's been it's been all over our message board this week. They're really big into a pitching coach. Here's the problem, though, and it's the problem that's been pointed out. Um, you only get two full-time assistants. So the only way you're hiring a pitching coach is you're going to hire one to be the volunteer. You're not going to get a top-end guy. You're just going to hire some dude who's willing to do it for very small money to get inside a program. Or you're firing Carl. And I just can't compute firing one of the top recruiters in the country at a school that has scholarship restrictions. Because if you don't have the talent, then what the hell difference does it make who, who is, who, who's developing them? So I don't know what you do. I, I, I don't – I guess my point is – it's not even that people are wrong. I just don't think it's that simple. I think it's a very complicated thing. I thought I think you might be really cutting your nose off, spot your face. And not, again, I'm not even necessarily having the conversation of firing Lafferty. I'm just saying having a pitching coach versus a recruiter in that spot um, in general, in a hypothetical, it almost makes it where if I were an AD, I would hire a hitting coach head coach because that allows you to kind of manage your offense yourself to some extent with a volunteer help and then have a pitching coach and a recruiter as my two full-time assistants. If I'm an AD, I would have a – it would have to be like a top-of-the-line, I mean a stud. Otherwise, I'm going hit, I'm going hitting coach for my head coach. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a much more comp- – that's a good great way to – like I hadn't thought about it from that sense. It's a good point. And it's, like you mentioned, more complicated. And, look, we just – I just made the whole case of, like, when's the last guy that's gotten better. I was really talking about in the last, like, five years or so, maybe go, go sticking back a little further because – the overall sample size is still really good. It's just misses in the last few years. And now as, you know, as the stakes are as high as they are this season with everything on the line, it's starting to slip. So like, 
it's almost in some ways like the Kermit, like, is he going to replace his staff thing? It's like, well, you've already kind of crossed that point. Like you're to the point of no mm. return. Like this is almost a moot conversation. So I don't really know what the answer to it is because as much as we talked about the last couple guys in that junior class, not carrying much weight, if Gunner doesn't get hurt last year, they may have the best one, two punch in the country. People love to, you know, fawn over Kumar rocker and Jack lighter. If you looked at those numbers last year compared to Hoagland and Nikhazy, it's really not a comparison beyond ESPN and SEC Network doing features on the dudes that wear black and gold. So, like, at the same time, like, he had one of the best one-two punches in the country. The kid just got hurt. And so I really don't know what to make of it. But I honestly view it as a moot point because you got to win now. I think a lot of – I think most people can guess where this is probably headed if they fizzle out and things don't meet expectations. Not a guarantee. You never know. There's part of me that thinks this guy will be here in 2065. But, like – at this point, it's a moot conversation. You've got to figure it out this year, and I'm more interested in, like, can he do it this year? But, you know, say that it does pan out this year, is there any chance that he gives up that control despite having success, like the success that would keep him here? Would he go to a pitching coach after that and give up that control? I would lean no, but I don't know. He would take Carl getting, like, the Memphis job or something yeah, and deciding to go ahead and, you know, take the head coach plunge or whatever. Um. Do you think, and this is just podcast speculation, we both know the man a little bit, do you think that him – because, look, we can act like he's in a bubble, and he is in a bubble compared to the relative head coach, but he had the meetings with Keith at the end of last season. He knows that he interviewed for the LSU job. He knows that at least he's not on the front end of a great contract where he's safe for years. Do you think there's an urgency that has gotten him to this point with these decisions? Do you think he would ride out – the old way of doing it if he thought that he was guaranteed 2024? Maybe to some degree. So the thing that the the quote last night, and you just mentioned the general mood that he was in. The last time where you talked about he's in this spot where the heat's on and there's not much, you know, he's not necessarily about to get extended again and his future is not necessarily certain was after they got swept against state in 2019. And then they win the Saturday or Sunday game, whatever that was against Tennessee that they were in a really bad way heading to Hoover that year. And his response was, I'm going to lighten up. And I'm, he didn't necessarily try different things as much in that, um, in that 2019 run, but he kind of lightened up and became a, a more open-minded in terms of how he dealt with them. And now I think he's doing that in a different sense. And it's related to the starting pitching and kind of in-game management of how he does it. And so I don't know if those two things are related at all, but it seems like the last two times, the heat has been really on and look, it's still a long season, right? They have what 24 more of these left. So, but that, but I mean, if that was as bad of a midweek, or excuse me, not midweek sec weekend series, regular season that they've had ever. So the heat was really on and he kind of lightened up and became more open-minded. I don't know if there's a trend there, but it could be. I mean, in 2014, he was going to get fired if it wasn't for basically Omaha. He yep. didn't get extended two years in a row and he guides them and gets that done. You know, you mentioned that. You mentioned Tennessee. And I don't really buy what I'm about to say, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. I, so, I, I get a text a couple hours ago from a scout, unprompted. I hadn't talked to the guy in months. And he said, uh, just FYI, Tennessee last weekend was the best college baseball team I've ever seen. Um, And not typically known for hyperbole, just kind of, okay. And – it plays into sort of on, on on this show last week. I interviewed Kendall for it. 
And Kendall made a comment that he said over the course of one weekend, Tennessee will look like the number one team in the country, that they just kind of overwhelm you over the course of one weekend and what they look like. And that was a Tennessee team that didn't even have Tidwell. They're going to get him back. Chase Burns, I mean, I, I don't know who made what deal with Devils to get him to, to, to campus and not, and not be a pro right now. But point being, Tennessee was so impressive that whether it's true or not or whether whatever is true, a scout tell us saying those sentences that is a normal human being that knows a ton of baseball and not just, you know, bloviating. It's an interesting deal of, are we sure that we didn't just watch the eventual national champion or the eventual number one national seed? And while Ole Miss is not that, they just ran into a buzzsaw that Tennessee is going to do a ton of people. Like, is, is it possible that, we're having a lot of discussions about how bad something is when really it's just Tennessee is that good. I mean, it, it's a little bit of both because, look, their starting pitchers are not getting deep into games. Like, all those things are very real problems. That That's not just because of Tennessee. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, you know, Auburn takes two out of three at A&M. Ole Miss takes two out of three at Auburn. Doherty did at least go five. They did some stuff. Maybe, maybe they've got one starting pitcher to fix. They get Kevin Graham back. I mean, I guess my point is – are you moving the ceiling or the expectation off of this team because of last weekend? Um, I mean, I guess the short answer is is no. Uh, I think the problems are real, but honest to God, I thought the rotation problems were just as real last, like as I heading into the weekend as I did. Sure. Like, no, after. those are legitimate things. I mean, it yeah, is what and, it is. And they were heading into that weekend. Now, I didn't necessarily think they would get exposed that way, but I think the scout quote you just mentioned is really telling and. I mean, look, it's only six games, but you go look at Tennessee's offensive numbers compared to the rest of the league and pitching. I mean, they've allowed eight earned runs in two weekends of conference play, and they haven't exactly played scrubs either. And so they haven't some, trailed in a game for 190 innings. Which is ridiculous. I don't really care who you're playing. You know, Iona aside or whatever that school was they beat up on. And then on top of that, they – whipped South Carolina pretty good. What was it, like 5-2, mm-hmm. 8-3, nothing. And then South Carolina turned around and took two or three from Vanderbilt. And I look, I know that was in Columbia. But I think the more and more you look at it, it does kind of look like it's maybe Tennessee and everyone else. And, look, you mentioned the number one overall, see the number one national champion. Injuries can happen. You saw that with Ole Miss last year. Things can change. It's a long season. I think that almost works toward the argument of Tennessee's just really good. So, yeah, I, I think there's certainly a chance that that's the case. I would almost lean that way looking at the rest of the SEC. You just mentioned it. Auburn went and took two or three on the road at AM. AM was a weekend removed from going to Alex Box and taking two or three. And then LSU back into the series at Florida. And so, is there a world where it's a decent amount of parity? Look, I know Arkansas is six and oh, but that was, or excuse me, five and one and almost lost two or three, but that's Kentucky and Missouri. Is it a bunch of parity and then Tennessee until they kind of get a dent, a dent in the armor? I think that's possible and almost probable. We'll find out a little bit this weekend because if they go just hammer Vanderbilt three times, we go, okay, well, all right. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't know what's left. So, okay, cool. Um, but, no, it wouldn't shock me if Vanderbilt won two games this weekend and Tennessee comes back to earth a little bit. I mean, what, whatever. I mean, that Tennessee is playing better than anyone else right now. On March 30th at whatever time – Tennessee is the best team in the country today for whatever that – whatever you want to make of that, whatever you don't want to make of that. You know, and, and from a media standpoint, it's been a little bit of a frustration because we gave so much of benefit of the doubt to Mike because he does always figure the pitching out that 
if you really take a step back, we should have all seen this coming to a larger extent than we did. You know, at no point had Derek really gone deep into games. His his best game he's pitched was Texas last year in Arlington prior to, you know, whatever did or did not happen or, you know, the, the therapy over the summer and different things. Um, you know, Doherty had only started a couple games, and he wasn't very good in the midweek when he did it. He pitched against Southern Miss and was okay, but it was a quick hook because it was a do-or-die game there in, in, in the regional. You know, McDaniel has obviously not put it together. I think he's got some of the best stuff on the team, but mentally he struggled at different times. You know, in Gaddis, you could convince me because I did like the stuff, and I do think he has a role that makes a lot of sense on this team. When they find it, I think I think he has the ability to have that role. But, you know, Corpus Christi to Ole Miss is such a big jump. He's still, you know – less than a year off injury to some extent. It's just when you look at the size and you write everything together, I kind of I kind of shake my head a little bit and went, yeah, you kind of screwed up. You probably should have probably should have seen this for what it is. And it's the irony of ironies is that fit the fan base is freaked out. The fan base is always upset by every loss. And I understand it. I I, I get it. It's emotional in a lot of different ways. But this truly more than maybe any other team, you're setting up your postseason, you're setting up to try to have a really easy road. You obviously need to host. You need to be a top eight seed for different reasons and all those things. But this thing has become a puzzle piece that is going to take a while. This is not something you're going to fix tomorrow. You're probably going to lose some games while you're trying to figure it out unless the schedule is just kind of too easy for you to do that. It has never been more a case of a postseason result being all that matters because they just don't have – between injuries and different things – unless they get really damn hot and the schedule is the reason for it, they're not setting up as one of these 21 and nine kind of programs. that's going to run through the sec and have this big lofty national seed. This thing is state 2013. It's, it's a lot of teams that didn't get to that level that state did in 2013. It's, it's a matter of saying, Hey, look, you got 56 games and tinker and mess around and find roles and do everything necessary and try. And when you get to June, have the best opportunity to win games because that's all the hell that matters right now. And I think that in some ways, Mike's going to have to kind of understand that too, that you're, you're playing for the postseason. That might mean a tougher road, but you, your roster is just not set up for some lofty rating and some, you know, some, some lofty resume right now. I think that's a good way to put it. And that's why they benefit from the schedule, right? They get Alabama and Kentucky the next two weeks. And in some ways that's a perfect justification of what they are, right? Because if they play well, they'll take two out of three in both of them. But if they could, they could wake up seven and five. I mean, you and know, that he's more on the offense, right? Like the, if the offense doesn't swing it well, they could certainly lose two out of three of these, right? Kentucky just lose, lost their Friday night guy for the season last week. So that's a team coming off a big series win, but it's pretty vulnerable in that sense. And so, I think the schedule will help them, but I think you're right. I think it's going to be a work in progress and it's going to take some time. And in terms of the most comfortable path to achieving what this team needs to achieve in order for, you know, Mike to stick around and all of that and the program to kind of stay the course instead of go in a different direction. Like that's not really the, I guess, ideal path, but it might be the way it has to be. Um, And so that's going to be the fascinating dynamic with it. Can they tinker with this? And that's really, you look at some offensive numbers, and I was doing this before we started recording, the through six SEC games, again, six games, not a huge sample size, but at a certain point you're kind of looking up and it's like this; these are not some great numbers. And I think that's where the offense 
Like that's where they're really going to lean on them to bail this thing out, right? They're going to need to bail them out a couple of times when they're still working through some starting pitching issues. And that was the most, I would say, I don't want to say the most alarming thing from last weekend, but if that continues, then they could really be in a bad way. They could you know, bash their way and still figure this pitching out and it not cost them a ton of games. But, you know, if they don't hit and they don't get healthy and Calvin Harris coming back helps, then it could really get dicey. And that's what makes it such a fascinating dynamic in so many ways. And, you know, the question, I guess, becomes is like, how do they figure this out? Like, what does this actually look like? The Gaddis part of it's interesting if you told me he's the Saturday guy, because I didn't think ever moving him to Friday was always one totally fair to the best fit for him. Mm-hmm. So like I could still see that, but like in that kind of the way this seems, it's as you put it earlier, it's Johnson and a freshman or Johnson and Gaddis. Like, doesn't that feel like the two options there? And then you just stick with Diamond on Sunday. That's kind of where this leans. Yeah, I mean, and look, I mean, Mike might throw two freshmen out there with Johnson this weekend and go, ah, let's let's see what happens. But frankly, I I don't think he knows. I think it's very legitimate. Because, look, you can say a lot of things about Mike, but he's very by the book. He's not gonna. He's not big on other advantages. He's gonna play it right. He's not gonna try to do the shady stuff. If he knows his pitchers, he writes them on the line and lets everybody else knows his pitchers too. I don't think he has a clue. I think he's gonna pick a Friday night starter, and then it is absolutely going to be how the games go on Friday and Saturday to dictate the Saturday and Sunday starters, who he needs at those moments. And then whoever's left gets the ball. And that's just how they play this thing. I, I don't think he has going to have any idea of exactly who is going to pitch the final two days. It is going to be situa- situational-based almost all the way up and down the line right now, at least against Kentucky. And you'll see where it goes next week before Alabama. Um, let's say Kevin Graham has two weeks left in his recovery. Who are you taking out to get him on the field? Oh, now this one opens up a can of worms because this goes into a lot of different areas. So, Am I crazy? Because I never would have thought this four weeks ago that I get Calvin Harris some starts behind the plate on the weekend right now. Nope, that's where I was going to go with it. So I was going to try to roundabout that way to possibly shot and yay, but I don't want to necessarily go there yet. I think it's the Dunhurst thing. That's a you, – Look, it was 20 to three. They won the game. Congrats. That was a rubber game against the arch rival North Alabama three years in the making. But like North Alabama ran on them like kind of at will. Did you notice that last night? I don't know what the deal is with Dunhurst. Do you think he's this is more injury speculation? I'm sure Mike would love that. But like, do you think he's fully healthy? What is the deal with that? And that to me, defense, it like right, Dunhurst is behind the plate. If Calvin Harris is hitting this much better, I'm doing this terrible podcast. But if he's hitting this much better than Dunhurst, you keep Dunhurst behind the plate because of the defense. Well, if that's not there, then what's the argument? Yeah, because Hayden has struggled offensively for sure. And defensively, I don't know if it's hurt. I don't know what it is, but he's not looked right. I mean, when healthy and when sharp, he's the best defensive catcher in the country, and it's not particularly close. It's This, this is not a shot at Dunhurst. This is a shot at is he 100%. Is something going on because he just doesn't look right. It doesn't look right at all, and frankly – Calvin's getting better. I mean, you know, I, I put it on the board yesterday that because of how good Dunhurst is, it sort of over, overlooks the fact that Ole Miss has the best number two catcher in the country with Calvin for damn sure. And, I mean, well, I mean, it didn't, it's not going to matter. But, frankly, the best number three catcher, too, because Knox is not terrible back there. 
I'm surprised um, that, not that that doesn't matter at all, but that kid could have played somewhere else. Like he's a hundred percent. People love the loyal Reb thing on Messenger. He's a you know, Madison yeah. kid or whatever Jackson kid. Like he's he's loyal because he could have played somewhere else. Anyway, no, he, he could start for for Power Five teams t- tomorrow. Yes. Yeah, no, he he's fine. I mean, Knox is not a bad baseball player at all. But point being, Calvin was a top 100 national recruit. I mean, he. He was like the number nine catcher in the country, and that was after falling a little bit in the rankings. He was as high as like one or two there at one point. I mean, I feel like sometimes we go, "Oh, well, you know, it's Calvin behind the plate." Well, no, I mean he's a, I mean he's a dude. It, it's not, it's not like you have this huge fall off. It's not Dunhurst, but he's not might not kill you back there. It's an interesting deal. What I, what we don't know, and it, it's kind of what I want to see. I guess this is my point: is teams know. They'll run on Hayden if he's looking like he is last night, but he obviously has a reputation. If he's sharp, if he guns down a couple, they just stop. They kind of do the you know defensive end running at Laramie Tunzel and decide, hey, it's not worth it. We're going to quit. Ole Miss is not very good at holding runners outside of a couple guys. In an SEC game, does the game look different with Calvin back there from a running and from other teams being aggressive standpoint? I don't have an answer, but in my opinion, with Calvin doing what he's doing offensively, it's got to be at least worth the look one time to see what happens, to see what teams do, to see what, how how Calvin responds to it. I think he's earned that because if you do that, it still opens up some ability to get Alderman and Leatherwood into the game and different things. Because if you don't do that, he's just having to replace one of those two guys when they come into thing. Uh, when do they come into the game? Because he's going to have to play corner outfield. Yeah, it, so I think at this point, I mean, the guy, look, small sample size, I keep saying that, but the guy's hitting, what, like 570? Like, he has yeah. to play every day. I don't know necessarily where, but then that kind of falls on the trickle-down effect of how do you handle DH and all of that because I don't think Alderman's necessarily done anything to say kick him out of the lineup at, by any stretch. I think the odd man out here is Ben Van Cleve probably to some degree and then Hayden Leatherwood, but how you move those pieces around and get – Alderman, I mean, Graham's out of the equation because he's playing every day once he's healthy. But how you get Alderman, Harris, and Dunhurst in the lineup every day is going to be kind of fascinating to watch. I don't know how he does it, but I think that's it's some combination of that, I'd imagine. But that's another storyline with this team that's going to be fascinating to watch. Well, and we don't know, too. The, the reason why this is probably a, a conversation for later when we do this in a few weeks is that I've talked to a couple doctors, and I think Kevin will be cleared in the next, I don't know, two, two and a half weeks, something like that. I mean, if it's sooner, great, and that helps Ole Miss. But I think that's a safe assumption is, you know, a couple, two and a half weeks. That doesn't necessarily mean he's 100% swinging and just his old self in two and a half weeks because that's some of Mike's balance, too, as this thing moves forward is you need him back on the field as soon as he's ready. But you have to wait on him to be ready to get him back on the field. And, and, And there's going to be a semblance of, hey, get him some at-bats, rush him a little bit. But in the middle of SEC play, they don't have that luxury right now. They've got to put the best nine guys in who can play today and for that game. And I think there'll probably be a little bit of, is today the day or is tomorrow going to be any better? And how you how you show patience on getting Kevin back into the game. I, I, I think that's one of the more fascinating things as we, you know, probably close in for the Mississippi State Series. I think that would be a, a, a decent target for when you could potentially get him back which kind of makes this whole thing fascinating in terms of just the whole Mike Bianco arc and the story of this season, because he's going to look, if they end up getting to where they need to go, he will have earned the paycheck and earned the security and earned the extension because I mean, we're two weekends in sec play. And if you were like, what do you know about this team? I would say they got a couple of good freshman arms 
and I think they can hit when healthy. But outside of that, it's a it's a total wild card. I don't necessarily know what the lineup is. He went. I don't know if it's a midweek thing. Did so Burford not playing third base and him going back to bench last night? It was just a day off. Okay, that and yeah. I didn't know if there's anything to make of that. But you mm-hmm. know, that aside, it's still you know kind of musical chairs a bit with some parts of the lineup. It's it's fascinating on a number of different levels, and if they they figure it out for sure, it, he will he will have earned it. And Burford's done a good job. He's been yeah. fine. Yeah, he's been fine. fine. That's why I was more curious about it because you know Bench had been strictly outfield, and all of a sudden, but I figured probably just a day off. But yeah, it's a it's a lot of moving parts of this team, and but there are pieces there. He has pieces to work with. Where in the past, it's like, does he get this team to a three seed? Not this version, but some teams that have struggled early. But I um I'm fascinated to watch. It will be interesting, nonetheless. Kind of last thing, anything around the league that is uh that stuck out? Any 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 major thought or two? Not really. Um. Alabama is sitting there at two and four and is that close away from being four and two with wins over series wins over Florida and Mississippi state. I think they're a pretty good team. Um, Brad Bohannon's probably getting fired at the end of the year and you have to go. Connor Prelip's injury has fired him. Yeah. And it's like, he did a decent job. And so I, that's such a tough gig. Um, outside of that, I mean, no, I mean, Tennessee, we already covered that. Um, I don't know. I, it's it's the it's how many Fridays? Everybody's in a big pile. Yeah, it's Tennessee in a big pile. Does it feel that way? And then on the other end, I think Kentucky, and even though they took two out of three from Georgia and Missouri, and that's 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 kind of it. Georgia, I do want to see them a little bit. They've got the Cannon kid who's who's really really good on Friday nights. Yeah. I mean, one of the top Friday guys in the league. But their secondary starters and their bullpen is god awful, and. They're going to win a lot on Friday and then lose a lot of games. If you're telling me to kind of do the stock up and down, I'm going to sell some Georgia stock because I just don't know that they have enough overall pitching to hold this thing up. What about Carolina? I don't really know what to make of them at all. I'm not sure I've watched more than about an inning and a half of South Carolina baseball this year, but they've got a couple of impressive wins, right? You take the series against uh, Vanderbilt, you beat Texas, but there's some interest, like interesting losses in there. They got Clemson swept them. Yeah, it's like, or excuse me, ten, yeah, Tennessee swept them. Like, I don't know what to make of them. It really does feel like it's shaping up to be a lot of parity plus maybe one school. And if they're like, who can jump out and be the second one? Who's the second fiddle behind Tennessee? Because I don't know if I could tell you who that is right now. Um, you know, I was ready to write LSU off, and then they back in that series. So no, it's a path yeah. for. I still think the number two team is coming from that main group. It's still there are paths for Florida, Vanderbilt, Arkansas, and Ole Miss. I mean, those still from a straight talent. If you said, okay, if everything kind of goes right and how you put the pieces together, it's one of those teams. I mean, I probably would pick Vanderbilt, but it's 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 any of that that hodgepodge for the most part. Because other the other teams just have most of the other teams have flaws in multiple spots. Like if Ole Miss could find even one starter with the schedule like it is, they sort of can manage it and it's okay. And they could get to 18 and 12. That wouldn't blow anybody out of the water by any stretch of the imagination or whatever the record ends up being. But the the mid-tier, you've got to go, well, these dudes are hitting better than they've been hitting and this starter does something. The pieces get all convoluted on how you on how you kind of get there. So right now it's it, it, it's early is what it is. I mean – you know, nobody nobody necessarily sucks. I mean, even Missouri can be plucky a little bit, even though they're not good at all. Um, I don't see – if you told me Tennessee maybe is the only team in the conference with 20 or more wins, I think I might even buy that. 
I would buy that. I think the rest of the league through two weekends looks like it's going to beat up on each other. And a lot of this is injury induced, right? State loses a Friday guy, probably another weekend guy in the Stone Simmons at some point. I don't know how that was eventually going to shake out. Um, and then you lose. I mean, Arkansas lost Pellet before the year. Arkansas is twenty and ten a place that Pellet stays healthy because it's him and Wiggins and Nolan, and they're, they're pretty good. That, that, that's not a bad group. Tennessee's doing without their Friday guy. Kentucky loses their Friday guy. I may be missing one in there, but like I think injuries have made this murkier either because it was already kind of a down year in the league pitching wise, and now it's like I really don't know what to make of it. So you know, there's opportunity there, and it's going to uh, as far as who who wins the West. That's probably the question because you, know, you got Tennessee on the other side. Who wins the West in your opinion? I think it's Arkansas. I would pick Arkansas today for a, a couple of different reasons. One, they get Ole Miss and Fayetteville. Um, two, they're already off to this hot start, even though they've played bad teams. And then three, crazy that I'm even saying this, but even with Paulette out, they have a better handle on their pitching right now than Ole Miss does. Yeah. Um, and because LSU's okay, but I'm not buying that at all. AM really competes, but they're not doing anything for me whatsoever either. And then, I mean, Auburn and Alabama's not going to do anything. So Connor I think that's Nolan. where I'm at. I, I would pick Arkansas. It's, I mean, no one's been huge for them. What a weird career. Turned quarterback, mm-hmm. turned average to below average weekend guy to turn guy they didn't really use last year in the bullpen. Like, I watched him a decent bit against Kentucky. And that span, Kentucky made five errors in four and a half innings with the misplayed fly ball. But um, that, I mean, he was really impressive. He's been huge for them. What that, what a strange career. I think Ole Miss would like to have had him right now, though. He started the Super Regional game against Doug. Is that right? That is correct. And yeah. to be fair, that kid didn't stand much of a chance. Um, no, no, no. Last thing, this was a random thing. Colin brought this up on Sunday. I thought it was a good point. I hadn't thought about it. You talk about reshaping this pitching staff in the portal. Why was Ole Miss not in the mix for a kid out of like Dollander out of Georgia Southern? What what's the deal there? I don't know exactly with him. I, I put this on the board the other day, and everybody freaks out because they think I'm talking about scholarships, and I'm I, I am, but I'm not. Some of the problem that Ole Miss has right now is that they have so much money tied up in their current roster, and their older kids that that, that are again the reason that you're needing to go into the portal. They didn't have any money for the portal. That, that that's where the scholarship did hit Ole Miss is that. You know, they were in on that, 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 uh, the left hander from Arizona, the reliever that transferred. And in a couple of those kids, they were in on, you know, they, they weren't going to get him because they had that, uh, AM hired his hitting coach, you know, Jack Moss when he leaves from Arizona State. They were on several of those guys and they just didn't have any cash because I don't know what kind of scholarship people are on or on or not. But if you told me to guess, Jack Washburn is a major league baseball player's son probably could pay his own way. That probably is not a problem where he was just picking the best situation for him. And then Gaddis has deferred off medical school. I mean, he's a guy who's going to medical school next year. He's probably a full academic. So my hunch is that guys who required scholarship money, Ole Miss just could not get in the mix for those people. And I think it it, kind of coming full circle, I think that's going to be Ole Miss's thing. You know, unlike football where Lane's made a heyday out of the portal and, you know, Kermit's trying to fix this thing through the portal. We'll see how that ends up. I don't know that other than one or two circumstances or guys who can pay their own way, I don't know that that's a great option for Mike. I think in the Ole Miss program in general, it's going to be more high school-based, and I think that brings back kind of coming full circle as we close. I think that's why it's so important to hit on those guys, develop them, and make sure that you're getting the things you have to get out of the the sophomores and juniors every year in your uh, in your class. I just 
the, the math to the portal to me does not work for Ole Miss and Auburn and Alabama and some of those schools that don't have some of the more extensive programs to, to, to help out in some different ways. So that's kind of where I see that. Yeah, because the 11.7, that thing's not divvied up equally in terms of dollars by any stretch. I think it's a good point. I never thought about it from, like, the two guys they did get are probably either full academic or, like you said, paying their own way, which – um. Like at least, I mean, I got a question. Is I got a question from a mailbag the other day. Is Ole Miss a top five job in the country? I'm like, dude, it's not top five in the conference. And people didn't no. don't like to hear that, but like, I mean, we won't do the job power rankings today. But I just feel like <laughs> there, there seems to be a bit of a misconception there at times, which is interesting to me. No, because I mean, it's it's again, everybody gets mad, and it makes me not even want to talk about it because it's not all of it. I mean, Ole Miss is not one in nine in super regional game threes. Right. Our games two and three when they can advance because of that. I mean, they should have been to Omaha more. They found ways to get around it. So it stops becoming an excuse when you're playing the games and you just got to win the games and you've got good players on the field. That's not the reason that Ole Miss hasn't done it. It also is why some people would be hesitant with a job change or if you were just Coach X coming into the league and going, okay, rank where you want. Yeah, look, the stadium helps, all the, the money helps, the fan support helps. But, you know, it's it's not winning games necessarily. I mean, if you told Lane Kiffin, hey, look, we're going to build you a 95,000-seat stadium and people are going to sell it out every game, but, hey, you only get 16 scholarships, not 25, probably be a bit of a problem. I don't think he would be uh, he would be, 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 be okay with that. Probably not, yeah, probably not okay. And, you know, look, it's just gotten worse. I mean, State, to their credit and because of where they are as an institution, They've got a lot of help right now. I mean, they have transformed that job into a much better job than it even was five, six, seven years ago. And I'm not even talking about the title. I'm just talking about different ways. They wave some out-of-state stuff, do some case-by-case things from a scholarship standpoint. State, states, they have fully invested in trying to get kids from those areas in school there. And it's, you know, look, it's not a problem almost Ole Miss has institutionally. They don't. They, they're able to do that without a problem. But – at the same way, that becomes a problem for baseball at the uh, at the same time. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll probably will do some power rankings at some point as the year moves on. We'll probably need to go through the jobs a little bit. But today is uh, it's not that day. You've got uh, you got Colin tonight. We'll do some baseball and then uh, grilling with Greg later in the week as well. Those podcasts will be up in the uh, in the feed as uh, as always wherever you guys are listening to us. And for uh, for Brian, this is Chase. We'll talk to you again very soon. That's Brian Rippey, Chase Parham, getting you ready for Ole Miss, Kentucky this weekend. Again, uh, that wraps up our week of podcast here on MPW Digital. We'll be back on Monday morning with the Oxford Exxon podcast. Don't forget we'll have coverage of uh, Ole Miss, Kentucky baseball. It'll be sort of remote coverage because we're not going to Lexington, but we'll have coverage from there. Ole Miss has a football scrimmage that as of this morning, Friday morning at 10.07, is still scheduled for noon. Uh, tomorrow we'll have some uh, observations from uh, that scrimmage as well. Um, trying to think if there's anything else. Some recruiting going on. I'll try to bring recruiting to you over the course of the weekend. I'll have 10 weekend thoughts on uh, Sunday, and then we'll be back on Monday morning with another episode of the Oxford Exxon Podcast. So, again, thanks to Adam Gorney. Thanks to Brian Rippey for giving us their time. Thanks for making us a part of your week, part of your morning here. Enjoy your weekend. Stay safe, and we will see you on Monday with the Oxford Exxon Podcast. Until then, take care.